you take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 5. We finished chapter 5 today. Been here now for, I don't know, probably five weeks in this chapter and been a good part of our study in the Gospel of John. I hope we can go out with a bang. Um, it's a great song, great singing this morning. Um, last training I was at over in Idaho Falls with uh, the Billy Graham evangelist, I think it was the last one, a guy named Aaron Schust, I think his name is Aaron, was there doing some worship and um, led us in some, some singing and he ended his block of singing with that song, um, How Great Thou Art. And after we sang that song, the guy, I think he's the executive vice president of the organization who's been with it for decades, got up and and when he got up, he, he, he asked, you know, how, you know, where that song came from, how great thou art. I don't know. I didn't know. Anyway, back in the 50s, Billy Graham was in London and was giving a crusade there in London. And one of his guys, one of, one of the guys on the team, was down on the tubes in the subway one day and was going somewhere. And some guy walked up to him, he was a Russian, and gave him this poem. And they translated it into England, into English, into England, into English, set it to music, and from that, How Great Thou Art was mainlined or mainstreamed to the world by George Beverly Shea singing it at Madison Square Gardens during the Billy Graham Crusades when he went to New York. That's really the story of the song. So this guy, this was a Russian poem, How Great Thou Art. It was a Russian poem that was then translated into English and turned into a song that we now love and sing. So when I sing How Great Thou Art, I think of it like as an old hymn, but it really isn't, is it? It's like, just like the 50s. And um, I guess that's old. <laughs> that, Oh, man. I'll shut up. Okay. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. In the bulletin, we're part of what we're going through in the bulletin is we're I'm putting excerpts from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689. You talk about something that's old really dovetails in most areas with the Westminster Confession of Faith. The two are almost synonymous except in certain points on Baptist theology. But we're looking at the doctrine of God. I don't know if you take the time to read this often, but as we were singing this morning, I was thinking of this statement that I had read this week in preparation to put it in the bulletin. Specifically, as we were singing the song, Indescribable, the character of God, who he is. And as we go to prayer, I just want to pray back to our God this statement. And let's think and, and just turn our minds onto the incomprehensible, indescribable greatness of our God that we worship. So join me in prayer. Father God, we know 
that you are one. That you are the only living, you are the only true God. You are self-existent. Infinite in being and in perfection. That in your very essence you cannot be understood by anyone. You are a perfectly pure spirit. You're invisible. You have no body, parts, or changeable emotions. You alone dwell in immortality and light that none of us could approach. You are unchangeable. You are immense. You are eternal, incomprehensible, almighty. That, Father God, in every way you are infinite. You are absolutely holy, perfectly wise, Holy free, completely absolute. Father, that you can work all things according to the counsel of your unchangeable and completely righteous will, and that, Father, you do it for your own glory. That you are most loving. You are gracious. I thank you, Father, that you are merciful. That you are patient. That you overflow with goodness and truth. That, Father, you forgive our iniquity, our transgressions, and our sin. that you reward us when we seek you diligently while at the same time you are perfectly just and you are terrifying in your judgments. That, Father, you hate sin and you will not clear the guilty those who do not submit to Christ as Lord. Father, this only, only takes us to the edge in words of who you are. I thank you that you invite us to come to you. Spirit, Holy Spirit, I pray that in your word today you would meet us, that you would teach us that you would bless us, that you would convince us, that you would have free reign in our midst. And so I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to go with me to John chapter 5, and I want us to look in verse 38. We began this portion of the chapter last week. We went from verse 30 to 47. And I want to just look at the end of this, and then we'll be done with this chapter, and next week we'll jump into the feeding of the 5,000. We're talking about the evidences that Jesus sets out before the Jewish leaders who are upset 
because he healed a man on the Sabbath, the man at the pool of Bethesda. And I don't want to do a full review of that. You can just look at the chapter. If you haven't been with us, you can catch up on that context on your own as I'm talking. But Jesus gives an apologetic to the Jewish leaders who are just losing it at him for telling a man to pick up his bed and to take it on the Sabbath. And they have been judging him. And he turns the tables on them, and he says to them, My Father has given you sufficient evidence to believe that I am your Messiah, and yet you refuse to come to me. And in this section, he gives four evidences. Maybe you remember them if you were with us last week. In those evidences, he begins by talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist said what? Behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. He must increase. I must decrease. That was the consistent message of John, pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus' very works testified that he was God. The very things he was doing, all these things we see in this book. The Father's words. Maybe you remember at the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus comes up from the water, a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Hear him. These three are clear testimonies to the Jews that Jesus is their Messiah. The last one is the scripture. And this is what we want to talk about today. We began this chapter by talking about the reliability of Scripture, because we looked at the deviance or the, 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 the differences in some of the manuscript evidence at the beginning of this chapter about the man at the pool of Bethesda. And so we talked about the reliability of Scripture. We're ending the chapter, chapter 5, by talking again about the Scriptures, about the book that you carry with you, the writings and I want us to think about what Jesus says about these writings. Specifically, what I want us to hone in on is what is the purpose of the Bible? If somebody came to you and just asked you, what is the Bible? Why do we have it? What would you say? What is the purpose of the Bible? My hope and my prayer is that by the time we get to the end of this today, you would have that answer. What is the purpose of the Bible? Go with me to verse 38, and let's start reading. Jesus says to them, You do not have this word abiding in you. How do I know that, Jesus says? Because you don't believe the one whom the Father sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And, notice this, it is they that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me. 
in order that you might have life. Remember John chapter 10? We'll look at this later. Not today, but in studies to come. In John 10, Jesus said, I am come that you may have life. And having life that you might have it more abundantly. The thief comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. I am come to give you life. And Jesus says, you refuse to come to me. You may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe? I want you to notice verse 44. I'm going to come back to this later in the message. This is an important question. How can you believe when you are receiving glory from one another and you are not seeking the glory? Remember what we just read in the prayer in the Second London Baptist Confession? He he rewards those who diligently seek him. How can you believe when you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Don't think I'm going to accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. Paul develops that. In the book of Galatians, in the book of Romans, in the book of Timothy, the purpose of the law is not to save you. The purpose of the law was to what? Condemn you. To condemn me. That when I read Moses, I ain't feeling very good about myself. Right? When you are confronted with the law of God, it don't make you feel like everything's good with you. It makes you understand what? God is terrifying in his judgments. And Jesus says here, I'm not the one that's accusing you. There is one who will accuse you before the Father, and that is Moses, the law. The law is a schoolmaster to lead you to Christ. So Jesus says, you are completely missing it. You're setting your hope on the wrong thing. You're a legalist. You think that you can be saved by what you do. And yet what you do is only increasing your damnation. That is what Jesus is saying. And then he goes on, he says this. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you don't believe what Moses wrote, Jesus then says, how will you believe what I'm telling you? So we see that there is a relationship between Moses, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It's not like there's a divide here and the two are antithetical to each other, that the two are enemies. No, the New Covenant is built upon the Old. And so Moses is testifying of Christ. And to read Moses wrongly is to miss the meaning of what he wrote. So there are four witnesses that God gave the Jews concerning Jesus. Now last week I told you 
These four evidences, remember in the book of Deuteronomy, we are told that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. Well, Jesus, God goes overboard. He doesn't just give them two witnesses. He doesn't give them three witnesses. He gives us four witnesses that Jesus mentions. And these four evidences were more than sufficient to allow the Jewish nation to render the right verdict on who Jesus is. He is the world's Messiah. And yet they what? They refuse to come to him. And that reminds us that evidence alone is never enough to cause someone to choose Jesus. People do not persist in unbelief because they don't understand enough. Because they don't have enough information. It's not an informational crisis. It's a what? Moral crisis. I don't want to come to him. I refuse to come to him. Why? Because he points out my warts, and he points out my sin, and he puts his finger right where I need it in my heart. Now, we have an enduring witness. And that enduring witness, it is the witness of the Spirit in the Word. Okay, so we talked about these other witnesses, John the Baptist, the works of Jesus, the words of the Father. The people in John chapter 5, they were there. They saw that stuff. But we haven't. So how do we know those things happened? Through the word. So in essence, there is one enduring witness to who Jesus is. And it is the witness of the Spirit as he works through his word. Now, here's my sermon in a sentence. If I could tweet it out. Right? If I could tweet it out, what would it be? So one of the things I'm trying to work on is make sure I know exactly what the sermon is in one sentence every week. So here's my sermon in a sentence. Scripture is God's witness to who Jesus is and why he came. What is this book? What is the purpose of the Bible? It's not just to tell you how to be a good boy or a good girl. It's not so we can just put Ten Commandments on every courthouse lawn, although that's good. Nothing wrong with that. It's good. It's not just so we have a history of the Jewish people. It's not just so we know how the world began. This book, primarily, at its core, in its purpose, Scripture is God's witness to who Jesus is and why he came. So if somebody asks you, what is the Bible? Why do you read the Bible? The Bible is all about Jesus. 
It's what it is. The Scripture is God testifying to who Jesus is and why he came. When we think about Scripture, we are talking about some things that we want to notice. I'm going to mention three things this morning, my three points that I want to draw out of John chapter 5. Number one, since that's what Scripture is, what we just mentioned, Scripture is God's witness. The first thing that I need to do is I need to search it. And what does that mean? He says to the Jews, you are searching the Scripture. What does it mean to search the Scripture? How do I search the Scripture? And how do I search it correctly? The Jews were searching it wrongly, weren't they? They were searching it, and they knew it very well. But they missed the whole point of it. But the first thing that we want to look at is searching the Scripture. The second thing is we are to believe it. We are to believe it. And as we search it and believe it, my third point is, and this really isn't in the text, it's just my deduction from these two, is if I am searching it and I am believing it, trusting it, then that's going to cause me to do what? Build my life on it. I'm going to build my life on it. So that's where we're going. We're going to talk about these three, searching the Scripture, believing the Scripture, building your life on it. Let's go back into the text for a minute, and then we'll talk about number one. In verse 38, he says, you search the Scriptures. That's an indicative. It's not an imperative. He's not laying a command on them, although there are many places in the Bible that it does lay that command that we should do this. He is just... This is a declarative statement. He is saying something that's going on. He's saying to these Jewish people, you are searching the Scriptures. Now, they didn't all, most of us have this book to one degree or another. you got a Bible. It may be in a book. It may be an app on your phone. But you got a book. And you spend time in it, I hope. I hope sometime during the week it's, you know, not just gathering dust on your shelf. I hope you're picking it up and you're reading it. When you read it, when you're going into it, it's easy to spend our time reading it, thinking devotionally, but then also thinking about everything we got to do that day. Right? How do you really search the Scripture? How could you get more out of your devotional time? What are some things that you could do that would make your time in the Word more profitable, richer? I want to talk about that a little bit this morning because I want us to think about studying the Word of God, not just reading the Word of God. You should read the Bible, but you should also study it. There's a big difference. Search the Scripture. The Word 
means to investigate thoroughly. That's what the word to search means. To thoroughly investigate something. And so what it really kind of carries out is the concept of studying something comprehensively and correctly. Study. Study habits. Dave read this in our scripture reading this morning. The chapter in 1 Peter chapter 1 began talking about the gospel, talking about Christ. But the reason that we chose this this morning is because in this section, it talks about what the prophets who wrote it did. Now think about this. The Old Testament prophets who wrote the Old Testament, when they were writing those prophecies, they knew that they were writing about this salvation that we have received in Christ. And it says of this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you in Jesus, what did they do? It's the same word we see in John chapter 5. They searched. They carefully investigated. They inquired. Think about that. These guys are right. Daniel. I just finished reading the book of Daniel. When I was reading the book of Daniel, I was amazed how it talked about some of the prophecies that he got. When he got them, they like blew him away and they, they like made him physically sick and weak because of the trauma that was involved in receiving that vision. And he was like asking the angel who was telling him these things, what is this? What does this mean? Who is this king of the south? Who is this king of the north? Who is this prince of Persia? And he's completely immersed and caught up in the meaning of the prophecy that God has given him through the angel. And what he was doing is exactly what it talks about here. He was searching. He was carefully investigating. He was inquiring. And he's wondering. He's meditating. He's musing. He's thinking about it. And what is he thinking about? Into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when God was testifying in advance to the messianic suffering and the glory that would follow. So it's telling us that these prophets who wrote this, just like these Jews in Jesus' day, were searching it out. They were studying it. They were wondering what it meant. They didn't just like look at it like, and I'm not saying anything negative if you use the daily bread. The daily bread's a great place to start. But it wasn't like, oh, I just read my daily bread. Now i got to go get into my day. No, I mean, they were in their day doing stuff. And what were they thinking about? What was on their phone and what's on the news feed? And... No, they were thinking about what? What's in the scripture? Amen. They were meditating on it. They were building their lives upon it. They were wondering what it meant. I want to draw your attention to this as well. This is a very important verse. In 2 Timothy, it is Paul's advice to Timothy, who was leading the church at, El at Ephesus. <clears throat> it's also the theme verse of Awana. 
isn't it? Be diligent. And that word to be diligent really means to make every effort. Be diligent. Be diligent to do what? To present yourself approved to God. Now, this concept of approved to God is a Greek word which speaks about someone who has been tested, who has gone through the fire, who has been under fire, and comes out on the other side and has been approved by what they went through. So he says, you want to be diligent, you want to make every effort to present yourself approved to God, a worker. Now he draws another analogy, and he talks about a man who is a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed. A workman. Many of you in here are workmen. Some of you are retired, and you used to be a workman. But you do things. We all do things. We do work. I was talking to a young man today who, who works for my brother building fence. He talked about how by the end of the day, after he's building fence, he looks at it, and he can feel a sense of accomplishment in what he's done. He can look at that, and he can look at it and say, Job well done. And his spirit testifies within him. Job well done. Do you remember that yourself? Obviously, we know what that feels like when you look at something that you have done. Maybe it's you ladies doing whatever you like to do. Yes, guys doing what we like to do. And we do things and we look at it and we feel that sense of accomplishment. And we don't feel shame. Sometimes we look at something we've done and we kind of feel like, oh, I could have done that better. You know, kind of you build a fence and it looks like a dog's hind leg. It's like, eh, that wouldn't pass the muster with my brother. And you want it straight, which is interesting because this word correctly teaching or handling accurately is a Greek word which means to lay it straight. It's like laying out a wall and a good builder does what? He lays it out straight. Straight as an arrow. And what he's saying here is that we as a Christian should be diligent to make every effort to present ourselves approved to God. We don't need to be ashamed. Why? Because we are handling accurately the word of truth. And I want you to notice that. Handling accurately. Now it's interesting, the old King James Version I memorized this verse in the Old King James in Awana years ago. It took this verb and it translated it what? Study. Study. Now, why did it do that? They actually were doing interpretive work. Because they understand that what this guy is doing, this worker who is handling the word, and he's going to handle it accurately, how does he do that? By study. The, the diligence that he is to apply to the word is the diligence of study. Some of you put a lot of time into getting a degree in some field of learning. And you had to make every effort, you had to apply yourself in that field and study it in order to get that degree in order to be able to do accurately the work that you want to go into. And it took great labor and 
tremendous amounts of study and investment. And what he's telling us as believers is we are to come to the Word with that same diligence to study it. Why? Well, in the connection to that verse, in verse 14 and verse 16, just before and after verse 15, where he told us to be diligent to handle it accurately, he says what? Remind the church of these things and charge them before God not to fight about words. Minutia that means nothing. Now we're going to talk about words in a minute. We're not saying words are unimportant. The Holy Spirit's not saying that words are unimportant. He's just simply saying here, some people get obsessed with minutia of words, and then they draw it into some stupid thing, and they get on some hobby horse, and they deviate from the Word of God. And he says, this is not profitable, and it leads to the ruin of the hearer. And then he says, after that, verse 15, he says, avoid irreverent, empty speech. Empty is vain. Empty, fluff. Irreverent is blasphemous or profane. Something that is profane, kind of like guttural street language. He says, avoid that, for it only produces a greater measure of godlessness. So he says, handle accurately the word and don't do these two things. So how do we handle accurately the word? Let's talk about it for a minute. How do you study writings? How do you study the writings? Now think with me about what writing is for just a minute. What is writing? Writing is the study of words, not in isolation, but in relationship to other words. And we study those words in phrases, in sentences, and paragraphs, and ultimately in books, and then as a part of the book, and we study it in the context in which it was written. Now, if you study microbiology, there are certain tools and methods that go into the study of microbiology. If you are going to study words or writing and get it right, what we are to do is we are studying words, but not in isolation. We study words in relationship to other words as they are found in sentences and in paragraphs in books, and in the book, everything in context. So in order to study God's Word, to search it, you got to do the diligent labor of getting down into the words and noticing words and what they mean. And then looking for the reality that stands behind them. Because the word testifies to Christ. So it's not just the words. It's the reality 
that they testify to, which is Jesus. I don't want to lose you on this, but here's my big point on this thing. If you're going to get it right, search the Scripture in a way that you allow the Scripture to search you. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me. You know me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You understand my thoughts from afar. There is not a word on my tongue, but lo, O Lord, you know it all together. You have put your hand upon me, in front of me, and behind me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, even the darkness is as light to you. I will praise you, he says, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And he closes that psalm by imploring God, O Lord, search me and know me. The spirit that we go to the Word to study the Word is not to sit in judgment on the Word but rather to allow the Word to sit in judgment on me. And that's really one of the ways that the Jews were getting it wrong. Secondly, believe the Scripture. You know, what are some processes of thought that undermine faith in the Word? You know, what are some processes of thought that undergird and support our faith in the Word? The Word itself begets faith. Paul says this in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. The Word produces faith. But I want to draw our our attention to this searching question. Because this is important. Notice with me what he says in verse 44. How can you believe? And then he's putting his finger on the number one impediment to faith. How can you believe when you are trying to receive glory from one another instead of seeking the glory that comes from the only God? What he is basically saying there to the Jewish people is this. The reason you are refusing to come to me, the reason you are refusing to see me in the Scripture is because you are not coming with a pure motive and a pure heart. You are coming seeking the praise of men and not the glory of God. The praise that alone can come from God. That is a searching question. The fear of man brings a snare. Right? That's what the Bible says. The fear of man brings with it a trap. That's the word a snare. It will ensnare you. 
in false systems that bind us. I, most of the boneheaded things that I have said from the, sermon, from the pulpit in my tenure as a pastor, when I say it wrong and get it wrong, typically, you know what it's been? Right there. Right there. I'll just be honest. When I am more concerned about the praise of man than I am the glory of God, I put myself on a road that will ultimately take me away from Jesus. But if I am committed to the glory of God above all else, He rewards those who diligently seek Him. Man, I read yesterday, this brought up I mean, this will bring it right to the conclusion. I mentioned this briefly in Sunday school. The archbishop of the Anglican faith on Friday came out and asked that the Anglican church no longer pray the Lord's Prayer by saying, Our Father. Because it is now problematic. Because it is oppressively patriarchal. Think about that. You talk a leader, the earthly head of a whole stream of Christendom, saying to his followers. It is oppressively patriarchal that Jesus would tell his followers to pray our Father. And that's a problem. I'll tell you what, that dude has a problem. Because God is terrifying in his judgments. Why does he get that wrong? His attempt to be culturally relevant led him away from Jesus. And we may not do it in such blatantly open ways, but it is easy for all of us to make subtle compromises, seeking the glory of men. That same spirit that's in that guy can reside in the heart of every one of us apart from the grace of Christ. To lead us away from this, and what? We refuse to come to him. Then we might have life. And we trade in the fountain of living waters for this broken cistern that can hold no water and is just dying on the vine in an attempt to please men. And it's hogwash. So our goal in searching the scripture, this is our goal. This brings the sermon in a sentence to a concluding sentence. So this is our goal. When you go to the Bible, what are you trying to do? It is for God's people to see Christ more clearly and to love him more dearly. That's what it is. 
If we keep that the main point, then God will be glorified and he will bless his word. If we deviate from that, we go down a road that leads far from our Savior. That God's people could see Christ through the eye of faith more clearly and love him more dearly. As Peter said, whom having not seen you love, whom though you do not see him now, yet you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it didn't just come to tell us about morality. It didn't just come to point out all our deficiencies. That, Lord, you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save us. There is salvation in none other. There is no other name among men by which we must be saved. And, Father, I thank you that you have given evidence to what he has done in your word. Lord, help us to read your word correctly, to glorify you. And so we pray in Jesus' name.